This is the Working Class Audio Podcast, Session 61. Working Class Audio, navigating the world of recording with a working class perspective. Here's your host, Matt Boudreaux. Hey there, everybody. Welcome back to the Working Class Audio Podcast. This is Session 61 you're listening to, and it's brought to you by our friends over at Gearslets.com, Universal Audio Audio-Technica, and Focal Monitors. Welcome. I want to say a special shout-out to Mr. Chuck Smith, our announcer there at the beginning of the show. Had a great conversation over Skype with Chuck yesterday. He, uh, I turned on Skype, and he happened to be there, so I rang him up, and we had a chat from Mexico. So uh, living the good life down there, my friend. Warm weather and uh, good food. So uh, special hello to, to Chuck Smith today. And... Uh, got a great show again as usual i have on mr tw walsh from boston massachusetts um ex-member of pedro the lion headphones and the soft drugs and uh, of course he's a musician but he's also a songwriter and he's a mastering engineer and he just had a new album come out of his own a few days ago it's called fruitless research and we'll provide a link to that had a great conversation with tw so uh that's coming up here shortly want to hip you to uh i've got some Websites laid out here in case you haven't, uh, if if you're listening to the podcast, you hear the mouse click. If you're watching on YouTube, you see me looking at the screen here. Got some uh, things for you. And one of them is if you are a, uh, an SSL owner, a former owner, or you want to be an owner and uh, you're interested in uh, all things SSL, I got a a great message from the folks that run uh, this forum and it's at uh, forum.sslmixed.com. Com. That's S-S-L-M-I-X-E-D.com. S-S-L-M-I-X-E-D.com is a, it's a forum, as I said, and it's really a community of people discussing all things SSL, uh, mods, uh, repairs, um, you know, pretty much anything having to do with keeping uh, older SSLs alive, discussing new SSL products, um, troubleshooting, uh, you name it, it's, it's there. But check it out, sslmix.com, forum.sslmix.com. Um, what else did I want to talk to you about? Oh, yeah, I've got these two tabs here open that uh, I want to talk to you about, Craigslist and um, Simply Hired. So, you know, work comes, work goes. If you're a freelancer, you just – sometimes you wonder where is the next check coming from. from? And in this case – things might get a little tight, a little dry in the bank account, and you want to just kind of stay on top of it. Uh, you don't want to sit at home and think the phone's going to ring all the time. Sometimes you got to be a little more proactive, uh, be an advocate for yourself, and uh, take care of business, really. So uh, today, just as uh, you know, uh, I do on occasion, I went over to Craigslist. I punched in a series of terms, audio, sound, mixing, you know, all the typical terms that you would associate with our business. And I typed in audio and sure enough, there came a couple of possibilities. Uh, One was, here's one right here. Um, This person is looking for somebody to basically take articles, narrate them as audio and send them as MP3s to them. I thought I could do that. I, you know, because, you know, I'm sitting here on this mic like all the time sitting in this chair every single day in front of the screen, in front of these monitors. Come on, I can do that. So, you know, who knows what uh, what will come of it. If it's a, a little extra money, great. Um, 
you know, if not, and uh, maybe the guy doesn't even reply back, you know, no harm, no foul. Um, here's another one, mixing and mastering audio engineers wanted. This one sounded a little suspect. And I say that because it's a little vague. Actually, it's really vague. Uh, mixing and mastering audio engineers wanted. New audio company seeking mixing and mastering engineers in hip-hop, pop, and rock music genres. Looking to hire five new engineers this year with good pay and bonuses. They had me at good pay. Um, so I went ahead, as vague as it sounds, I went ahead and, you know, sent an email just saying, you know, I'm interested. Let me know more about this. So... That's uh, that's one area, uh, Craigslist, and of course, simply hired, uh, where you can, you know, you could type in a keyword like, um, let's try the same thing, audio, uh, type in your location, and uh, see what comes up because you just you never know. A lot of the times, I think you're going to see some of these uh, uh, installers. There's a lot of install jobs out there. No harm in that, of course, if if that's your bag. I I, I know nothing about that you know, like home audio installs. Um, here's one full-time production assistant over at Cumulus Media. Uh, that's who uh, I used to work for when I worked at uh, KFOG uh, a while back. So that's an uh, idea. And you can get email alerts through Simply Hired, which is cool to alert you to certain uh, keywords. So, you know, just want to give you some ideas in case things are looking a little week in the bank account and you're thinking you don't know where the next gig is coming from just trying to help you out in that department uh i know it helps me out and occasionally i get some gigs from there um i've tried elance man that just feels i don't know i've i, I go on there and people are just low-balling and it just kind of runs counter to how I like to do business. I don't like to lowball. I don't like to be the cheapest person or the free person just to get the work. I just don't, you know. That goes back to my last comment. I think um, one or two episodes ago, I mentioned uh, Tony Maserati, a post that I made about uh, Tony uh, for Mix with the Masters, talking about the importance of not working for free. You know, even if you work for a, a low amount, don't work for free, but uh, I try not to even do that. So, um, yeah, that's it. Just want to hip you to a couple things there. Working on a show about acoustics. Yeah, that's going to be coming up uh, hopefully in the next few weeks. Uh, going to do some changes to the to the mix room here at home and um, some new acoustic treatments. I've already painted a couple walls, which are out of camera view. And, of course, if you're listening to the podcast, that matters not one bit to you. But, uh going to do some painting, new acoustic treatments, new uh, new arrangement, I think, here, just to uh, change it up a bit. I think that would be the good way to go. And I'll let you know more about that. This show that we're working on is hopefully going to be uh, full of content uh, about acoustics for you all that uh, you can digest. We're trying to you know provide useful information if possible. So uh, that's that. Uh, let's uh, jump right into our interview with Mr. T.W. Walsh here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Gosh, I think I need to start a little further back with you because reading up on your past, first of all, you're a drummer. Mm -hmm. Do you still play with Pedro the Lion? No, so Pedro the Lion broke up in 2005 or 2006. Mm -hmm. So I was playing with Dave and, and Pedro the Lion on and off from uh, 1999 to about 2006. And for about three 
three and a half of those years, um, it was a full-time thing. So that was like my full-time job, touring in that band and, and recording. At different times, I played drums, bass, guitar, keyboards on different tours. Um, and Dave and I are, are both in, multi-instrumentalists, so on the recordings, we would, you know, depending on the song, play different instruments. So it was a great, great experience getting to see the world. You know, we toured uh, the U.S. and Europe and, and a lot of Canada, too. Great way to see the world and a lot of great musical experience, too. Do you ever find that when you're touring, it's, it is great to see the world. I will agree with that. What I always found difficult was you don't really get to see you don't get to get intimate with a city when you come in. It's kind of, you come in, you, you get sound check or radio things or in stores or whatever. And then you end up, you go play the show. And unless you have a day off, you don't really get the full scope of the city. Would, would, did you find that? Yeah, for sure. I mean, it's definitely not the, the, the most ideal way to travel and see the world um, because, you know, you're driving, you're driving eight hours a day. You got to lug gear around. You're not getting any sleep. You're drinking too much, all that stuff. <laughs> and you don't get to see the cities you're in. Right. But it's better than nothing, you know, like uh, to have seen the the entire country multiple times and just have that sense of kind of uh, motion and camaraderie with your friends. It's definitely, definitely fun, if not the best way to travel. I think that, I think touring has made me uh, kind of, really hate itineraries so when i go on vacation with my wife and kids and we're with like say my wife's family and we get up and everybody starts planning stuff i'm like whoa can't we just hang out all right <laughs> and just see what happens and yeah because everything's so scheduled you know you got to be in a specific place at a specific time you have people expecting you for load in and uh yeah things are really itinerized so um I definitely sympathize with that. I mean, when I was touring a lot, and this might have been your case too, uh, it was kind of pre, pre uh, smartphone. Yeah. So you know, we would print out MapQuest directions, and they were you know wrong fifty percent of the time, and there was no GPS, so it was even it was a lot more complicated than it is now. But that that kind of gave it a sense of adventure too, I guess you know. My touring days were pre-internet, so there was no yeah. MapQuest. There was it was just like Atlas, and then and if you were the um, navigator and you blew it with the map, everybody got pissed off. Oh my god, yeah, we'd constantly be be pissed off at our booking agent for the crappy routing and the long drives, and then whoever was driving would get lost. It, you know, a lot of stress. But I mean, you try to have a sense of humor about it. So I want to just fast forward a little bit to today, uh, just because these songs are fresh in my mind uh, from your new record, Public Radio and, and Young Rebels. Name of the record, uh, Fruitless Research. Reading the the press release on it, you kind of went through a little bit of crap to get this record done. It seems like leading up to it, there was just like all kinds of issues yeah, I just I got really sick uh, in 2013, and um, you know I had been trying to get into shape, got a gym membership, and I would basically work out six days a week, six three days a week. I would play basketball at, for about an hour at six in the morning. The other three days a week that I was working out, I was doing a pretty heavy duty weightlifting routine. Mm -hmm. I had done sports on and off and stuff my whole life, but um, I wasn't in great shape, and I had I just jumped right into it, like, really hardcore, so um, I pushed through it. You know, a lot of times I would be tired, or I wasn't feeling quite right, but I would always push through it. Like, I kind of have this obsessive 
personality. So I, I pushed through it and, and whatever happened, I'm not sure, but I just really uh, pushed my body way past its limit. And so kind of my body shut down. I think it was primarily like my endocrine system, my, mm-hmm. my uh, adrenal glands. Like I had too much cortisol 24 hours a day and my testosterone went really low. And so for about 18 months, it was just a real struggle to kind of just function, you know, and um, ultimately I did get a little better, but if I push myself too hard, um, like if I do any kind of strenuous exercise, I just get really sick. It's like flu-like kind of symptoms. Um, so I'm still kind of dealing with it, but if I'm if I take care of myself, it's 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 okay. For that 18 months, like I couldn't do anything to get better. It was just you know like chronic fatigue all the time. So now, if I live a healthy lifestyle, I can I'm just fine. So I'm trying to I'm just continuing to try to get better and just kind of get get my system back to where I can exercise on a regular basis. You know because I want to do I want to jog, I want to do yoga and things like that. But for whatever reason. My body freaks out when I try to <laughs> when I try to do that stuff. So, I would just recommend, like, for anybody out there, if they're if they're thirty eight years old and they decide to start really pushing their bodies, they might want to do it gradually. I was going to ask, <laughs> did you do it just like, hey, I'm going to start going to the gym six days a week, and here I go. That's what I did. I got two different. I got a. I got a. I have a couple friends who are into um, weightlifting, and so I got plans from them. So I would do that. Those plans three days a week. I split up the body parts, and um, I made some good progress with that. And then the other time, I should have just been resting on those off days, but instead I was doing really intense cardio. So I just didn't get enough rest. I wasn't eating well enough, but I didn't expect it to have such long, long-lasting long effects, you know, on my body. Mm-hmm. So I was feeling better, and then I promptly broke my elbow. Um, <laughs> so I just I converted my bike from a uh, standard track bike to a fixed gear bike but I didn't I didn't tighten the chain enough so the the wheelbase it just wasn't quite long enough to keep the chain taut so one day I was riding it and I stood up and I went was going at full clip and the bike and the chain slipped and I just went over the front oh my onto god the, onto the pavement right on my left elbow so I kind of smashed the elbow luckily I didn't need surgery but it was still like 6 months before I could really play drums properly and stuff you know it was fine. It was definitely a learning experience. The all this stuff to kind of like reevaluate the way I looked at life and the way I treated my body and um, a lot of different. It changed a lot of things for me. So I'm thankful for that. But it was it was definitely a pain in the ass. Can you talk about how when the body is not at its best state, how that can affect the recording process for you? Well, I think that. It's just a, a domino effect. So if your body isn't right, your mind isn't going to be right because it's preoccupied by um, all these signals that the, it's, it's getting from the body, right? So if, you're, if you've got anxiety and you don't know where it's coming from because something chemically is off, um, you can't concentrate properly. I mean, fatigue, it's mostly about concentration. So like when you're trying to record or you're trying to write music, you really need to be able to focus on what you're doing and you need to have the energy to sustain that over time. And I think that that's what was the hardest for me to maintain was, was focus because I was just so tired and distracted by the discomfort in my body. When you're making, um, for example, on fruitless research, 
you're not feeling good. You're trying to make this record. I mean, it's hard enough to make a record, I feel, when you're wearing both hats, exercising the two sides of the brain. I can't, I can't even imagine like feeling like crap how that influences the whole situation. Yeah, I mean, it's for me, creativity, it's kind of just like a compulsion. So like I, I don't know how I do it because I have two jobs. I have three children. And I'm trying to also do this creative work. So the only way I can explain is I really have a compulsion to do it. So I kind of don't have any choice. You know, I'm not really doing it to get exposure or make money because that that ship has sailed as far as (laughs) trying to make money as an independent musician. Mm -hmm. So it's just a compulsion. So like when I do have the energy and I can find the time, it's something I do. It's it's. It's like a hobby. I just I liken it to the guy who's in his garage like tinkering on his car or whatever like that. It's just something that I do in my spare time just for fun, you know. But you're also a mastering engineer. Right. So is that one of the jobs? Mhm. Yeah, I have a day job. I work at a software company and I also master about 100 projects a year on the side. So I do that on nights and weekends and things like that in my studio here in my house. And it's been really good. Uh, I've definitely got exposed to, a, you know, I've gotten a lot of great experience. I've gotten to work on some high-profile records, and um, it's kind of kept me tied to the music world a little bit more. You know, since I left the touring life behind and things like that, it's, it's, it's been good for me to kind of keep one foot in, in the music world. How did you get into mastering? What led um, you to that? Yeah, that's a good question. I first got exposed to recording in general, I think when I was in about sixth or seventh grade, and that would have been the late 80s, you know, I had a friend whose older brother had a cassette four track. He wasn't using that. He was playing a lot of sports. So we just kind of stole it and recorded uh, ridiculous music on that for a few years. <laughs> we upgraded eventually. I upgraded to um, a reel-to-reel, a half-inch uh, reel-to-reel eight track and a crappy bi-amp board. We would mix a cassette, and then I got an early, I think it was like a Turtle Beach like sound card that had an input or something, so I w- could print mixes digitally. This would have been our, in the early 90s. Then I got a SCSI CD writer, so you know that I, that's an old connection standard that doesn't really exist anymore, SCSI. I think it was like 500 bucks for this CD burner. You know, individual CDRs were a few dollars at that time, too, so... I would print the mixes to the computer. I would burn them on the CD burner, and it was like miraculous. We could pl- I had a CD that we could play on <laughs> on my dad's CD player, but only one out of every five worked. You know, there was every you know four out of every five CDs I burned just were were garbage. They were coasters. You know, I used to work at a pro audio store in San Francisco, and when recordable CDs came out. We sold them for fifteen dollars a piece. Wow! Yeah, right. And it would it would be nothing for somebody to come in and go, okay, I'll take a box of ten. Okay, that's one hundred and fifty dollars. Like, whoa! I, know. I mean, just that, to think about that now, like, really? Times change; they really do. <laughs> <laughs> when you say coaster, I'm thinking, oh, there goes fifteen bucks. A fifteen dollar coaster. I know it was frustrating too because it was really it was a really slow process, but um. My friends just thought it was magic because we had been dealing with cassettes forever. And then here I could burn burn CDs. It was magic. So from there, like, so I was kind of like a 
hobbyist recording engineer. And so I started making, I, I was a drummer in bands and then I start, you know, I just started writing my own songs and I actually got signed to a small record label in Seattle as a songwriter. And at that time I was recording on like a digital heart, digital eight track that recorded onto um, zip discs and I was mixing to the computer. And so I decided to master my first record for that independent label. It came out in 1999 and I could just to challenge myself. There wasn't a lot of software available to do that. So I, I can't even, I think I used like Cool Edit Pro or something and burned the CDs. And it worked. So we sent the CDR to the manufacturer. It was a legit manufacturer and they didn't reject my CD master. So at that point, I was like, all right, I'll do this for my friends when it comes up. You know, I'll, I'll do this. Ultimately, I moved to Seattle to play music and I kind of put everything else on hold besides playing music. After that ended in 2005, 2006, I moved back to Boston in 2007, where I'm from. Up until that point, I had worked on dozens of records up, up until then, but mostly as like a recording engineer, a mixing engineer, a producer. Mm -hmm. So I put up on my website that I was available for hire as like a mixing engineer. And this is kind of early days for doing that over the internet, but to receive files and uh, mix them in a DAW and do that process over the internet in whatever it was, 2007. And I got some clients. I, you know, I've got several clients a year and it was cool. It was fun. More often, as time went on, it seemed like people were requesting for mastering services instead of mixing services. Mm -hmm. I think it was because of um, the trend more and more towards DIY. So, you know, as the technology becomes more available, the artists are doing more and more. And so mastering is kind of like the last, last, the final frontier for DIY where people aren't as comfortable doing it themselves. They want somebody else like to give it a stamp of approval to kind of fix all the remaining problems and put it all together. So I think that um, because some of these clients were familiar with the work I had done, they kind of trusted my ear and they just wanted my stamp of approval and for me to kind of help them pull together the projects at the very end. And so I started doing that in around 2008, I started focusing more on that. And since then, every year, you know, the business has grown and I've, you know, adjusted my rates and, you know, tried to make it uh, so that I can balance it with the rest of my life. And it's, it's worked out well. I was checking out your website and I was just kind of, you know, examining all the different elements of how you break your mastering down. And one thing caught my attention, you charge per song, seems totally normal, for WAV files. I think what I liked as, as a possibility for even myself or, or as a possibility for other mastering engineers who are, who are doing it, you charge a separate price for prepping a DDP file or you know, a CD to go to the manufacturer. And I thought that was interesting. Uh, and I'm curious why you keep that a separate charge. I think in a lot of cases, at least 75% of the cases of the work that I do, it ends up being digital only. So there isn't a physical medium. So I guess it's twofold. I don't want to charge people for services that they don't need. So I don't want to roll that overhead into the per track price because a lot of people aren't going to use that. And secondarily, I don't want to not charge for it at all because a lot of people who don't need those services will take them anyway. 
if they're free. So if a band has no intention of doing vinyl or they have no intention of doing a CD, if it's free, they'll ask me to do it even though they have no intention of using it. And three years later, if they decide to do their CD, which they'll never do three years from now, they will have lost that file anyway. They'll come back to me, ask me for it. So it's kind of a it's kind of a fail safe in both in in that direction. Mm-hmm. And so it is a lot of extra work, you know, the quality control, the assembly, the CD text, the ISRC, um, and then for vinyl, you know, there's separate audio processing that needs to be done. So. I just keep it as a separate service for those two reasons. I like that. And and do you hand out ISRC codes to the bands or do you have them go and get their own ISRC? Yeah, I don't generate ISRC because um, that's something that they can go out and do on their own. A lot of the bands that I, that I work with that want ISRC and or know what it is, they're on record labels anyway and they have an infrastructure for that. Mm-hmm. So all the labels have an infrastructure for generating those. A lot of the small bands who come to me and they ask me for ISRC or um, CD text, well, sometimes it's just because they saw it as something on my website. They don't know what it is. They don't know how to generate them. And I just tell them not to worry about it. I, I mean, CD text is irrelevant for the most part at this point. You know, there's maybe some car CD players that use it. <laughs> um, my car. Yeah, right. Yeah, um, yeah. ISRC for a really small band, that kind of tracking, that kind of granularity of tracking is it's just totally unnecessary. So the bands that need it, just get them from their record label. You also have a kind of a, I don't want to call it a manifesto, but it's it's basically, it's kind of a, an explanation of, hey, there's this thing called the Loudness Wars and I don't subscribe to it. So if you've got an issue with that, let's talk about it. Essentially, I'm paraphrasing what, what yeah. it says. You want to tell me just a little bit more about that? Do you have bands that are always, you know, louder, louder, louder? I think it's less of an issue now than it used to be. I probably wrote that several years ago and kind of carried it over to my most recent website. It was an issue when I was beginning as a mastering engineer. I was like a quality control and dynamics freak. So I hated the idea of changing what the mixes sounded like. I was kind of pathological about respecting the mixing engineer's vision. Mm -hmm. So I had an approach to mastering which was basically normalizing the sound across all the mixes for the record and making it at a a reasonable volume. And kind of the idea was, you know, at least do no harm. You know, I didn't want to do damage to the audio, and I I really saw a lot of the extreme limiting and clipping that was being done as damaging. At the same time, a lot of the bands that I was working with, their idea of what mastering is or was, was was loudness— Mm-hmm. You know, taking the mixes and making them loud and making them sound like other stuff that's on the radio or uh, in their iTunes collection. So I was kind of constantly fighting those two impulses to to keep the dynamics and respect the vision of the the mixing engineer or the producer and then dealing with these bands who wanted everything loud. I think ultimately what happened was I kind of lo- – it was a combination of two things. I kind of lost the battle. You know, everybody wanted their records loud, even the ones who came and read that on my website. They said, you know, after the first pass, it'd say, sounds great. We love it. We love the tone. We love all the dynamics, how you've kept it, and uh, but pulled everything together. But can you make it louder? <laughs> I heard that all the time. And then the other thing that happened was I got better at making stuff louder. So I knew how to do it in a way that wasn't as much of a compromise. 
um, in my mind. So I just got better at it. And so I think that that's a little bit less relevant than it was maybe five years ago. You say you're pathological about quality control. I'm curious about that. Like When I was um, younger, my my ethos was kind of informed by engineers like Steve Albini and Bob Weston, mm-hmm. who were kind of purist in their approach and um, really went for a, a crystal clear kind of photographic image um, of the sound. But it still had impact. It had the right amount of compression and it had, there was like a beef and a heft to it. But it was really like a um, documentarian kind of approach. And so when I was in my 20s, that was the kind of thing that I was into. And so I kind of extended that to mastering where I wanted a, a verite kind of approach to the audio. And so that was kind of where that pure, puritanical approach came from, I think. But over time, I've gotten more into really shitty sounding records. And I love distortion and I love um, coloration and saturation. I think my palette has expanded a little bit. You're not really pushing the mixing side of of your talents to other people at this point in time? I do it a lot for friends. So um, peers and friends, um, I'll collaborate in like a creative capacity on those type of projects. What I found with mixing was the revision process and the recall process was really, clients tend to have an expectation that everything is instantly recallable. They know that you can make adjustments that are half dB in any direction. (laughs) They'll approve mixes and they'll sit on them for two weeks and they'll come back to you and say, you know, can we change this one thing? And there was actually one project in particular that was with like a kind of a higher profile songwriter and uh, somebody who I had always wanted to work with. And I'd worked with in a small capacity in the past, but this was an opportunity to mix an entire record for this songwriter that I really respected. But this project dragged out over a two-year period. We were halfway done with the record, and we had like five mixes in the can. And he was talking about going back and re-recording vocals and guitars on mixes that we had finished a year previous. And so at that point, I was like, I just can't do this anymore. You know, it's it's too time-consuming. And the, the amount you can charge for a, to do a mix and the, the amount of time it can take to manage that process is just – it's just not a great return on investment. So if I could charge more or if clients were more reasonable or, you know, some combination of those, I would do more mixing. It's just um, – with mastering, it's it's primarily a technical task. And so there's less room for ambiguity. There's only so much you can manipulate the mixes, and so it's just more cut and dry, that that revision process. Do you ever have clients come back to you on the mastering end of things and say, I'm not really sure what you did, but maybe they they find fault with something that maybe ultimately it's a performance issue that they're that they're sweating over, but they think that the mastering may have changed, like, yeah, now my vocals sound out of tune. Like, do you have, ever have anything bizarre like that come at you? Yeah, not, not to that extreme, but typically it's like they'll send me mixes with with a lot of caveats or requests in advance. So it's it's not typically that they're trying to figure out or or reverse something I did or they're confused about something I did. They it's more often that they deliver mixes and they say, "Yeah, the the guitar is way too loud in this one. Um, can you turn it down?" Or the vocals. <laughs> Can you turn down the vocals in this section? And the, either they don't understand what 
what the process of mastering is, you know, that I'm working with a two with a stereo file and I can't reach into the mix and change the volumes of individual instruments or, you know, the snare is buzzing a lot on this one. Can you fix that? So it's more like they don't really understand or, or they they have an unrealistic expectation of what can be accomplished in mastering and they, they don't want to go back and pay the master the mixing engineer to fix it. Now, I'm not trying to be ageist, but is this a generational thing? Is this like younger people doing this? Yeah, a lot of the time, more inexperienced people. And I've had a lot of conversations with those folks because I think in a lot of cases, they have a really myopic view of what they're trying to accomplish. You know, they can't see the forest for the trees. And I try to explain to them, listen, you know, you think that the vocals are half a dB too loud on this song, but a month after it comes out, you're not going to believe that you ever thought about that. You're never going to think think about this again. And I tell them, you know, I've worked on like 800 records. I've released, you know, half dozen of my own records. And at the end of every record that I make personally, I'm disgusted with it. I hate it. I can't believe how many problems there are with it. But then a couple months later, I can see I have that perspective and, and you know, none of that shit matters. <laughs> so I've been able to convince several artists to take that approach but sometimes typically it's like guys who are in who are who went to like music school or uh you know something like that who are they're inexperienced but they're really intelligent and they're really talented and that's kind of a bad combination (laughs) (laughs) oh man you know it's god it it really can be frustrating these days where the industry has kind of wound up you know where we we're more insulated we're not at big studios as much running into people there's not that interaction there's a lot of you know i mean hell we're having this conversation over skype right there's just a lot of misinformation out there there's a lot of i don't know i'm venting sorry no it's your your interview and i'm venting i'm just (laughs) please i just interviewed jim scott on my last episode and uh jim has worked with a billion like people, Wilco and Dixie Chicks and the Rolling Stones. And I had read that he doesn't do recalls in, a, mm. in I think it was a tape op article. And I asked him and he was like, yeah, I don't do that half DB stuff. No, if they want it, it yeah. changed, I'll remix it. Cause he mixes it on his knee and then it's like a performance and that's it. Right. And the artist is right there going, nope, let's, can we turn the guitar down? Okay, great. Can we turn the bass? Great. And it's all done. And then once, once it's over, it's over. Yeah. And um, you alluded to this at the beginning of, of that eloquent rant that, like, I think I learned about this stuff by sitting in a room and sitting in a studio with an engineer for like 10 hours a day for two weeks or whatever. You know what I mean? Where you kind of get, this by osmosis. And so in this current world, everything's done over text and you transfer files. There's no way to transfer that experience because you have to do it in person and it has to be done over a period of time. I can't I can't sit down with a 20-year-old kid and give him all my experience in a one-hour conversation. I mean, you have to spend time together and you you know, you have to react to um, situations as they arise and they can glean things over time. And so that kind of, it's not even a formal apprenticeship, but it's kind of a, it's kind of informal mentorship 
that happens in a situation where you're in the studio with a producer or an engineer and um, you get to know each other and you kind of see how they do things. I think that that that's going away and that's why you have so many people making music with really fucked up conceptions about how to do it. Yeah, and I I think like if you're maybe if you're a younger musician and you're really musicians are I think we could say this cuz we're both we're both musicians, but I mean artists are typically vulnerable. They're they're very they could be insecure about their their music, a little panicky and excitable. Yeah. I think that when you're in the room with an experienced a producer or engineer and you see how they react and how they behave to the situation i think you're right i think that that kind of informs like the whole thing and you tend to go oh okay well i guess i can relax this person's relaxed and let's take a closer look at this yeah when you're young you're trying to figure out a way to be in the world you know like how do i how do i behave if you do that in insulation or in isolation it's dangerous because you need you need role models. You really do. And I mean, as a parent, that's something I'm mindful all the, of all the time. I'm not just teaching them when I'm explicitly teaching them. They're learning from me all the time. And so it's something that used to be kind of built into the way that musicians and engineers learned. But, you know, we're losing that. Let me ask you this as a parent because I'm a parent as well. How old are your kids, if, if I may ask? Um, they're 14, 13, and 7. Okay. How about you? I've got a 7-year-old and a, and a freshly minted 10-year-old. Okay. And uh, two boys. And I have to say that from a parent perspective, that's an adventure into itself, and, I, and it's not for everybody, and I'm not advocating everybody be a parent. But my experience with my kids really informs how I interact with people in the recording world. Mm -hmm. I find that when I run into, you know, very mature people who really have their shit together, I just gravitate towards that. I'm like, oh, great. We can yeah. have adult conversations. This is fantastic. We can make, you know, records that we're both proud of. When I run into immature people with lots of opinions, but very little experience and who act almost childlike, I'm just kind of like, oh, God, I got to bring yeah. all my parenting skills into this situation. And it really frustrates the crap out of me. Yeah, it can definitely be exhausting. I mean, I have the luxury because I'm not depending on mastering and engineering work for the entirety of my income is I can say no to any situation like that, you know, <laughs> with mastering like maybe five projects a year, I get a really problematic client who's young and uh, you know, just making weird requests. But for the most part, it works out fine. And I'm not in that position of like be, getting into a creative relationship where, where I'm going to have to kind of really rein somebody in. You mm -hmm. know, I'm thankful for that. <laughs> All right, taking a little break here from our interview with Mr. T.W. Walsh on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Want to make you aware of the fact that uh, Nina Michella, James Meter, and of course, Cole Williams here from the podcast. We are going to be getting together once again. I've mentioned this before in the last couple shows, but uh, we will be getting together to compare three new Audio-Technica microphones, uh, do some sound samples. We're going to be comparing three mics in three very radically different price uh, points. Uh, the AT2035, which... Uh, Looks like goes for about one forty nine. Uh, the uh, AT forty forty seven, which we have uh, experience with from our last round of, of samples, uh, that goes for about six ninety nine. And the uh, AT fifty forty, 
little bit different category there. That's, uh, of course, listed out at around $29.99. That's the, uh, the microphone. Actually, I have it right here. Hang on one sec. This. All right. I've shown it before. It comes in a, in a really great case. Nice shock mount. Really nice shock mount. Uh, well built. And uh, this is the one, you know, the one with the, uh, the four rectangular capsules in there. So we'll be checking that out. Really nice shock mount. Did I mention that? I love that shock mount. Anyhow, uh, we'll be doing some samples for you and uh, doing some video of that so you can uh, investigate, make some decisions for yourself, and we'll post those samples up on the website for you. So that's about it. want to get back to our interview with Mr. T.W. Walsh here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. I'm curious about how your, well, two, two parts to this. First of all, your, your family, how does that inform and, and control, I'll say control, your artistic life? What's that balance like for you? Is it, is it a struggle to get time to do the artistic things? Yeah, it is. And it used to be, it used to be more frustrating for me where I had a lot of kind of anxiety around wanting to be creative and trying to find the time to do that. But it didn't make for better music or and it didn't make for or and it didn't even make for more music. It was just more anxiety around wanting to have time to be creative but not being able to get it together because of my other commitments. So a couple things happened. One is that my children got older, so I do have a young child, she's seven, but my older sons are teenagers and so they're more independent. So um there's less like hands-on childcare. There's a lot of like driving them around and stuff. <laughs> um, it's less hands-on, so they're more independent. So I have more time because my children are a little bit older. You know, I just changed my mindset to where I'm less uptight about having to find the time to do that stuff. And if I get three hours on a weekend to to make up some music. That's great. Another thing with this most recent record was, I mean, typically I play all the instruments. I do the, all the arrangements. I record everything. I perform everything. I, you know, mix it and master it. And in this case, I would do basically a, 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 a kind of a, a bare bones arrangement and I would send it off to the guy I collaborated with and he finished it. So that was another thing that has made it easier is kind of opening myself up more to collaboration. Who was that person that you uh, collaborated with? His name's Yuki Matthews. Okay. He's the bass player for The Shins now, and he has worked with my old colleague David Bazan a lot. He works with Sufjan Stevens, and he's been doing a lot more um, mixing and production lately. So he did a great job of kind of taking my arrangements and expanding on them and mm -hmm. in some in some cases really changing them <clears throat> drastically and he made a lot of interesting sonic choices too like he mixed the whole record to cassette which gives it this weird lo-fi wow feel so he he bounced it out to cassette and then ran it back into the the ad converter so it's it was like an old tascam four track that he used two channels of it sounds and he just blew it out you know just way over you know overdrove it that's what gives it this kind of crunchy tape saturation. It definitely has a, a very, very particular character. That's cassette, yeah. That's the cassette character. <laughs> yeah. Interesting. I wonder how that jives with your, you strike me as somebody who really is, is organized and, and kind of, as you said, pathological about quality control and certain things. So was it hard to like, give this over to somebody else 
I think at first it was, I was, because I've tried it in the past and I think, you know, the proof is always in the pudding. I've worked with a lot of different collaborators on my own stuff and other instrumentalists and mixing engineers. I think it just depends on the taste and the capabilities of who you're working with. So in this case, I gave it to Yuki just to see what he would do. And it came back totally different than what I would have done, but I loved it. So mm-hmm. we just ran with it. And over the last five years or 10 years, I've gotten more into distressed sounding recordings and um, minimalistic stuff and really saturated stuff. So, you know, you get older and your taste just develops. And so I think that from a um, from a quality control perspective, I still have a same, the same output, but my aesthetic choices or my aesthetic identity has changed to where I like certain types of sounds mm-hmm. and I want to capture the best version of that sound, but it might mean... To some, to some people, it might sound like the worst version of that sound. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's all about your aesthetic approach. Going back, I had talked about your family and the balance of that. What about the balance of your job? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's definitely a challenge. Like, I had children when I was, I had my first kid when I was 25, and that was right at the same time that I got my first record contract, but I was working, you know, I was working full time. A lot of stuff happened at once. So I graduated college in 98. I got married in 99. And that's the year I got signed to an independent record label. So from there, I was working a job. I would do tours here and there. Like I did like one tour in 2000 where I played bass in Pedro the Lion and I opened as a solo artist. You know, my record was released. I came back from that and I went back to work. I had a kid in 2001 bought a house and then my kid was like six months old i had just bought a house and i got laid off um god um and then 9-11 happened oh my god (laughs) wow so um everything was really screwed up so for the next few years i kind of floundered around i opened a recording studio in boston um or kind of like joined I partnered with with another guy for a studio in Boston and, um, you know, just trying to scrape together a living and had another kid. So it's always been my, – my, my priority has always been, like, to provide for my family first. And we made a decision early on that my, I didn't want my wife to work, so I've always had to – It's a, we've been a single-income family. That's always been my priority. So whatever the situation I'm in creatively or whatever, it's – uh, you know, I've made sure that I can provide for my family. We live in a really high, as you, you know, you live near San Francisco, the cost of living um, is ridiculous out there. Mm-hmm. And it's also very high out here. So I've always had to have a full-time day job. You know, I'm lucky I have a, you know, I have an engineer college degree in engineering. And so I've worked in technology. You know, it's just about having your priorities straight. You know, just providing for the family is the most important thing. It's interesting, when I was at NAMM, I, I ran into a bunch of different people and ran into a, a WCA fan who was, um, you know, he was a transplant to L.A. and he was asking me about, you know, I, I have my family here and I'm, you know, doing all this other audio work, but ideally I want to be doing music. And I, I just said, look, man, you know, I don't want to tell you, I don't want to tell you not to chase music, but, you know, if you're making money in these, in audio, in these other areas... I strongly encourage you to stay with that and let the music thing develop organically, you know, don't 
don't feel like you got to go into debt and put the family in a stressful situation to do it. It just doesn't seem right. Yeah, it's just a priorities thing. It's it, it's basically impossible for for anyone to start from zero and make a living creatively as a musician if you if you want to live at anything more than a subsistence living. You know what I mean? If you're 20 years old and you are paying $400 a month for rent and you can survive on ramen, then go for it. But if you have any kind of real overhead, it's just not a realistic approach. And I, you know, I don't know what it's like out there for freelance engineers starting out, but I mean, it took me, I mean, I've been recording music as a hobby for 25 years and like I'm doing this full time for almost 10 or, you know, concentrating on mastering for almost 10 years and it's taken me that long to get to this this point where I can charge what I charge and I can do 100 projects a year. It just takes a really long time to to get the momentum or you have to be really lucky. And I've just never had that kind of breakthrough moment in either my creative music career or in my engineering career. I mean, I've worked on some high-profile records, but they didn't necessarily – they didn't win Grammys and they didn't bring attention to me to where I was, you know, I could quit my, quit my day job. Mm-hmm. So it's, I mean, it really is, you just got to have, you got to be in the right place at the right time. You got to have a lot of luck to make it work if you're, if you have any kind of real overhead. I'm wondering if you could uh, speak to the idea of uh, people's, people's motivations in recording and, and music or run the gamut some people you know like will make sacrifices because you know maybe there's a they want to be like there's a fear of missing out or they want to be like you know doing the cool stuff and going to the you know i mean some people like look at you know going to trade shows like nam which i just came from is just like oh you know i gotta be there it's like i gotta be with make connections make connections i gotta you know i gotta be uh i gotta be seen as being uh, you know involved and They'll ignore their their priorities, and I'm wondering if you could speak to that. That have have you met a lot of people or come across a lot of people in the recording world that are simply doing it because you know they want to be seen as doing the cool thing rather than yeah. I mean, I mean, people get into recording for a lot of different reasons. I mean, some people just fall into it. Like I love reading about those those British guys who got into it in the '60s or the you know the late '50s, and they're like. Yeah, I quit. I got out of high school and I had no idea what to do. I saw an ad in the paper and I got hired at EMI and now I've been I were, I've recorded the White Album or whatever. You yeah, know what yeah I mean? now I'm writing a book about my experiences. <laughs> yeah, so I mean you have those kind of people. Then you have like frustrated musicians who like really wanted to be songwriters or musicians and they couldn't they weren't good enough and they just wanted to be around music and so they did that and a lot of these people the t- the Either they live in Athens, Georgia, and they have no overhead, you know, they're living in their mom's house or whatever, or they, you know, they have a wealthy girlfriend or something like that. I mean, they're they're taken care of. And like, I've just, you know, I grew up in a working class family. And um, as I said, like, I got married young and I, and I had children young. And I've just, I'll, I've always been in that position to be, to have to be the breadwinner. And so, 
all that other bullshit went out the window. I mean, I've never been to a NAM. I've never been to that one that happens in New York. I've never, you know, like, um, I went to a couple tape ops, but one of them was, it was great because I was on a panel once and I got to go for free. And the other one my band played at. So if I had the luxury to, if I had the luxury to have that kind of lifestyle where I could do those type of things, they would be fun, but I would be doing them because it would be fun. It would be like a vacation, but uh, you know, I've never had that that luxury. I don't understand I don't understand that lifestyle, but I've always been so distracted by all the men, the many the, the different plates that I've been spinning to really think about it too much. I don't know tons of tons of engineers in real life. All of the the engineers that I know are they also compose music and they play in bands and they you know they're touring musicians. So it's this community of people. All my peers are creative people who mostly do engineering in order to facilitate the, their own creative expression. I don't know I don't run in those circles of like a lot of professional engineers, I guess. I haven't really thought about it. But that's an you know, you made me really think about it. A lot of the people that I know that are engineers are primarily doing it as part of their their own creative expression. With this background you have, this working class background, and all the things you've mentioned here in our talk, I'm curious, what is your financial philosophy in regards to the equipment that you see and how to make it work for, for you? And, and do you see in your interactions with other artists or engineers that you may or may not run into or that, that you've encountered, say at like tape op or potluck audio, or what is your advice on, on what do you think works? What's the, what's the ideal way to be doing this financially? That is an awesome question. And that's something I've been thinking about a lot lately. So number one, I love outboard stuff. I think it sounds awesome. I love vintage stuff, but it's not a, great investment. I know that you can get your money's, you know, it, it retains value. And so if you buy a $3,000 compressor, you can probably sell it down the road for 2,500 bucks and you've, you know, you're, you haven't really lost a lot of money. The thing is that now with the quality of AD converters now and the quality of DSP processing and the quality of the people writing the software, plugins sound amazing now. So I think a lot of the reason that people still use outboard gear is because they like the tactile interface, right? They really like turning knobs and they like interacting with gear that way. Number one, get great converters. So I have like a Metric Halo ULN8 that has eight mic pre's and it's got really um, amazing clean AD converters. So good converters, good quality preamp. You can do any kind of coloration you want. You could add transformer sounds, tape sounds. If you investigate the plugins that are available, you can you can do any kind of saturation or coloration you want in the box. And then if you use high-quality control surfaces, then you can get that kind of interaction as well. And I'm like I've actually built my own um, control surface. I'll see if I can swing you, it around and you show you. You built your own control surface. Let's see yeah, this. So this is a control surface that was inspired by the Universal Audio um, consoles from the late 50s, right? So you can see that each one of these knobs is is two is over two inches in diameter. They're Bakelite. So I sourced all of these these knobs on eBay. I have a brain inside that converts uh, the potentiometers that are, you know, hooked into these into uh, MIDI, and then I use Ableton Live. And so every parameter in Ableton Live, I can map to one of these one of these knobs. 
And so this is just a a prototype of something that I've been thinking about for a long time. Being able to interact with like vintage gear emulations with uh, a vintage gear type of interface. Yeah. And it's really satisfying. You know, it, to me, I would rather use the knobs on this than the knobs on a, like a modern 1176, you know, because it feels good. It's a two-inch knob in my hand that I'm turning, you know. So Wow. I would say, you know, and I'm considering, you know, building these for other people and, you know, creating a company around it, building basically really high-quality control surfaces that have a vintage or a classic... Uh, look and feel to them and being able to control those high quality vintage emulation plugins with this kind of interface is a really satisfying way to work i would agree that's it is one of the things that's mixing in the box i miss i'm kind of between pro tools and studio one and i have a slate touch screen in front of me right now which I'm kind of still getting getting a feel for there are days when I'm just like, God, I just want to like grab stuff and turn it and get my results that way, even though I like the in-the-box workflow. Yeah, and that's what I do. I mean, being able to – I mean, this takes up a lot of space. It's like three and a half feet wide. But when I'm setting the input gain on a, you know, a preamp emulation or you know, setting the threshold on a compressor or turning up the spring reverb on something, to grab one of these Bakelite knobs that – weighs a half a pound, and to turn that, it just feels so fucking good. <laughs> <laughs> what did that cost to build? Um, you know what? Um, I decided in advance not to um, keep track of that because I was just going to get depressed about it. Um, I'm trying to figure out if I do manufacture them, what I could get the price down to. I'm still trying to figure out all that stuff. I mean, the biggest cost was honestly the knobs, like each one of these knobs, to have the correct weight you know, you need the you need the bake light, and so you know some of these knobs cost me fifty bucks a piece. Mm-hmm. Well, it's it's a concept that you're that you're experimenting with, and I mean, right. I'm sure should you decide to you know go go down that path and take it super seriously, I'm sure you could talk to somebody who can really help you figure out how to you scale know get, it up, scale yeah. it, and and make it uh, reproducible in a lower cost manner. But right. That's not my expertise. <laughs> Me either yet. I could think up all kinds of ideas, but how to how to make it scalable, I have no idea. So from an equipment perspective, wow, you built that. Do you is there anything else that you you build? What have I done? No, not really. You know, I don't I've never been an electronics guy, so I studied mechanical engineering and computer science at school. And so I've tried I've done some really simple things like I can I had to learn how to solder quickly in order to do this but I've never been really good at um at building electronics you know I've never built a microphone or a preamp or um or anything like that eventually I would like to get into that there's so many kits available now you can get all the pieces in one fell swoop and and put it together I'm more like gross mechanically skilled like building you know, furniture type things or modifying guitars and things like that. But this is the biggest project I've ever done. That's quite a project. Yeah, it took a, it took a few dozen hours. You know, I wouldn't even know where to begin as far as uh, turning this into MIDI signals. I that just I don't even know how to do that. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of resources online. There's some uh, several companies that make the 
circuit boards or the brains that you need to do it. If you follow up with me, like if you're interested in it, I, I can definitely give, give you some info. Maybe that's the, the way to go for me. I just, I need something to, you know, to turn yeah. on and touch. Right. And you just, ma- you know, it takes the same amount of time to map one of these knobs to a software parameter that it would to patch something in in a patch bay. You yeah. Know? It's it's not really any more, any more work. And it's flexible. Once you're done setting the parameters for an individual compressor, you can wipe that mapping and then use those knobs for something else. Yeah, I tell you, man, just on the topic of gear, when I was at NAM, it was just, it was overwhelming. There was just so much stuff that I would yeah. just like gloss over. I'm like, yep. Yeah. It's like being in Vegas or something, I would imagine, you know, you get in, you're excited about it, but then you get there and it's just like an assault on the senses, you know, like, yeah. That's a good analogy. It is like yeah. Vegas. It's yeah. like ding, 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 right. and too many people and all kinds of, you know, people from all walks of life, some interesting characters for sure. Yeah, I like sure. seeing the photos of, you know, like friends of mine who are like posing with Dennis Chambers or something. I mean, I like seeing that stuff, like being able to brush shoulders with some of you with those kind of legendary characters it's really really cool i love gear i love seeing that stuff you know it's just for me to take vacation from my job and like be away from my family and spend a couple grand to go it's just not a thing i can do yeah it's it's a trek especially i mean from boston so yeah in terms of boston and where you're at you live outside of boston in, in the in the suburbs you said yep what is your relationship to the boston scene are you are you friends with a lot of in, well actually no you said you don't know a lot of engineers so yeah a lot of the work i do is is remote anyway i do i do have a couple friends and they're usually young they're like younger guys in their 20s now like there's a guy who runs there's two uh, analog recording studios in in boston that are you know for the most part all analog and i've kind of befriended those guys and they they it's just um so novel you know, in in the, these days to walk into a recording studio that has a multi-track tape machine and a mixed down tape machine. So some of those guys I've hung out with a little bit and I'll master records for them because I'm like, you know, the digital guy who, you know, is empathetic to the analog workflow or whatever, you know. So the Boston music scene, I've always been kind of an out, outsider. You know, I've just had a really weird career. Like when I was younger, when I was 20 I was playing drums in bands by the time I was 25 I was playing I was a songwriter but I was on a Seattle record label and I was touring nationally so I've never really been part of the Boston music scene and so now I'm just I'm old you know I'm 41 so like to be part of the the music scene it's 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 too late for me, you know. <laughs> <laughs> I know as you get into your forties, I don't know how other people are, but you just get to this point where you're like, I, I don't give a shit. Ah, uh, who cares? I yeah. don't. I really don't care. I mean, when it comes down to booking a show, um, you know, for like, because now I'm trying to promote my record and stuff, and I want to book some shows, it does get complicated because I don't even know who to write to or who to call. But um, you know, I, I, I just reach out to friends who know what they're talking about, and they give me a hand. It used to frustrate me when I was younger because it was so difficult like post Nirvana or whatever and you know in the late 90s it was difficult to get a gig in town you know just to get a show and there was like only a couple of venues that maybe put a bad you know left me with a bad taste in my mouth at this point there's more venues and um I just have different kind of expectations I'm not trying to get a high high local profile uh, for my music necessarily so but- 
as we're running out of time, but I do want to ask you a, a bit about this record and, and the making mm -hmm. of it. Made it, I assume, recorded there at your house where I'm sitting, where you're talking right. to me from. Mm -hmm. And your setup there, do you, you have a place to record drums? I see the back end of a mic stand behind you. Yeah, so, I mean, this is kind of just the rec room in my, in my basement, right? So I have a 60s uh, Ludwig kit there. Uh, some of my guitars over here. I have like an amp closet where I put my um, my guitar amps. I have a couple like early '60s guitar amps. I have two, you know, a couple analog synthesizers, and so um, I have eight inputs on my ULN8, and I use a really minimalistic mic drum miking technique. Like um, it's usually one mic, um, front of kit mic, um, and uh, so I can kind of leave everything set up. I have a couple DIs going in for the the synths and the bass. I got my amp closet with a with a 57 on the amp. I've got my SM7 for vocals, and I can re just record ideas. I use Ableton Live. The workflow for me, I'm, I've really adjusted to, and it has easy mapping for my control service. Mm -hmm. So I just do stuff really fast. You know, I'm able to loop stuff really fast if I want to in Ableton, or I can perform a song all the way through. It's a really great compositional tool, so I can work really really quickly and I, I i hate huge track counts that's why i use really minimalistic miking techniques is that um i want to keep typically my the record previous to this one called songs of pain and leisure it came out in 2011 and i mixed mixed it on my own i did all the production i don't think there were any songs that had more than 12 tracks on them so it's all about arrangement. So like if you're careful with your arrangement, you can keep your tracks down really low because you're making the most of each of the instruments in the arrangement, you know. So mm -hmm. if you're really care if you're not just throwing down ideas and using a la you know layering, you can keep your track count really low and that means that you can like the panning on that record, that earlier record, you know, the drums are all the way right, the bass is all the way left. Um and so you can use the imaging in a really creative way if you're not competing for real estate you know you just have a handful of instruments and you can do a lot of really interesting tonal things with each individual instrument god i wish the majority of the records i mix came from folks like you oh my god <laughs> like i see I, 12 I have friend, tracks i have friends on twitter like uh don gunn i think you um oh yeah don he he'll post a he'll post images sometimes which come from the the mixing sessions that he's doing and there's a 200 tracks i would just i I would throw my um, computer in the bathtub. It, I would. I just couldn't do it. That's another reason I don't mix because, like, my own aesthetic is so minimalistic when it comes to recording. I just can't. I don't know what to do with with twelve guitars. I don't know how you're supposed to put twelve guitar tracks into one one song. I just can't. I don't know how to do it. Yeah, I mean, it it it, it would drive a person to be a mastering engineer, <laughs> right? <laughs> Well, this has been great, man. It's really great talking to you. I, I hope to meet you in person someday. That is one benefit of, I will say, of NAM is I yeah. ran into a lot of people who I've only met over Skype or email, and it was really great to see people in person. Well, it's been awesome. I really appreciate you kind of, you know, asking really insightful questions, and, you know, I'm sure you weren't that familiar with my work in advance, so it was, uh, I don't know, you did a great job. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Well, I'm just curious. Curious yeah. how, how does how does your world work? What what makes it work for you? Let me ask you. What makes you stay in it? What makes you stay in music? I just love it. I can't, you know, it's it's the one thing that 
I, it's my, I feel like it's my calling. That's the only way I could describe it is that I have a compulsion to do this. I feel like it's what I was put on earth to do up until this point. So I just, I just keep doing it. Like I've tried to give up. I've tried to walk away from it before because sometimes it seems irresponsible to keep doing this when I have uh, other ways which might benefit my family more for me to be spending my time doing. But it's just like, I'm stuck. I'm stuck in it. It's part <laughs> it of your soul. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, and to me, if your soul is satisfied, then that that's a direct benefit to your family. Right, and so that's what I've come to come to acknowledge too is that you know, music is a part of my children's lives too, and they're really passionate about passionate about it, and it's it's cool to have something to to pass on. You know, I would agree. Totally agree. Well, this has been awesome, man, and I. Appreciate you coming on and, and taking this time. Yeah, it's been great. Good conversation. I, I really appreciate it. All right, there it is, Mr. T.W. Walsh here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Make sure and check his album out, Fruitless Research. Uh, like I said, we'll provide a link to that. And uh, yeah, so we'll, of course, be back next week with uh, another wonderful guest. And as I said, we'll be working on that uh, show about acoustics for you. But we are just about out of time. And, of course, we want to thank our friend, Mr. Cliff Truesdale. Cliff, where are you? There you are. Thanks, Cliff. And uh, I want to thank Cole Williams for his help. And I want to thank uh, Chuck Smith. And I want to thank uh, all of our sponsors, Gearsluts.com, Audio-Technica, Universal Audio, and Focal Monitors. And I definitely have to thank you all. I appreciate your continued support. Thanks for tuning in. Take care. Hey, I know many of you are aware of this, but for those of you that aren't aware, Working Class Audio sponsors the forum over at gearspace.com called Audio Life. And quite simply put, it's a place where audio professionals can go to talk with other audio professionals about things other than audio gear, including life hacks, work-life balance, health and hearing loss. You know, if you want to talk with other audio professionals who can identify with what your lifestyle is like, and how it relates to things going on in the world outside of audio, this is a great place to go and check out. So head on over to gearspace.com, check out Audio Life, many of the same topics that we discuss here on the show on gearspace.com. So check that out.